Well, good evening and welcome everyone to Crucial Conversations, teaching you to think like a confessor. My name is Peter Slate and I am your host tonight. Joining me is once again, Pastor Peter Ill of Trinity Lutheran in Millstadt, Illinois. And I'm particularly excited because my own pastor, Pastor Kevin Golden, is joining us here tonight for our show where we are going to be talking about the 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th commandments in Luther's large catechism. So uh, before we get going, once again, subscribe to the channel. Help us uh, reach, we get to that 100, 100 subscription mark. We uh, get to like do a custom URL so we don't have this gibberish series of numbers. So help us get to 100 subscribers. That would be awesome. This will also be podcasted if you prefer to listen while you're driving on your commute. Links for that are down below. And of course, if you have been joining us for our series so far, this is episode number six. This is part of a reading plan we are going to in the Grokmoot, which is our Facebook uh, group associated with Crucial Productions, which is what we're a part of here. And you can find links for that down in the description as well. And that applies if you're listening to the podcast, if you're looking on our blog, or you're watching the video, all of that information is down in the description. So tonight, the 7th through 10th commandment, Luther's large catechism, as always, we are using... Referencing primarily, if it's me saying it, our our other pastors might have other versions, but we're using the Lutheran Confessions Concordia, which is the reader's edition, second edition. So when we talk page numbers, that's generally what we're referring to. But every once in a while, we might pull out the Kolb Wengert or the Triglata or something like that. But for the most part, we're using the second edition of the reader's edition. And so tonight, we are going to cover, yes, we're going to cover all of this. Pages two, sorry, 384 to 398. So that's the last four commandments. And we are going to dig deep into really seeing how much we actually love ourselves. Even when we think we love God, even when we think we love our neighbor, what we really love is ourselves and idolizing ourselves. And so we're going to Talk about how deep our sin really goes tonight, um, which check out our Thursday episode on the law. We talked about that a little bit, too. So, But first of all, Pastor Golden, it's your first time here. Um, introduce yourself. Tell us where you're at and all that great stuff. All right. Uh, Pastor Kevin Golden, pastor at Village Lutheran Church in Ladue, Missouri. That's suburban St. Louis. And uh, Peter, you told me I could say whatever I wanted to about myself. I will... <laughs> Say only what is true. So my greatest claim to fame is I am husband to Joy, and uh, she just gave birth to our seventh child a month ago. So we are blessed with a nice full parsonage. Yay! Wonderful. That's that's great. All right. So let's get right into it. Let's start talking about the seventh commandments. And if if you've watched our show, if you've listened to our show, we've kind of started getting into a rhythm of how we cover this. So the first question. That we, that we want to talk about is, as we are discussing commandment number seven, which is, you shall not steal. Pastors, what scriptures do we want to be going to as we are looking at this commandment, especially as we're, well, does Luther go to any particular ones that are helpful to us as well? That's always a good uh, question as well, but let's go to scripture. What scripture shall we be looking at as we discuss this commandment? Pastor Il, go ahead and take it first. Well, obviously, the first scripture we look at is that very scripture about the seventh commandment itself, that you shall not steal. And we see how God speaks about 
um, on the negative side, how uh, throughout the Old Testament law, the Torah, uh, that uh, the people, uh, God's people, should not take what isn't theirs. But on the positive side, God also speaks about how they provide uh, in physical ways for those who are, who are in need, especially for widows and for orphans, for people who are going through difficult times, for people who have any kind of a support. And so on its face, this is a pretty simple commandment. Don't take what isn't yours and do provide uh, in love and in Christian service for those who don't have. Uh, and so that part and those scriptures are, are pretty easy and pretty obvious. Um, you could also think about, though, how uh, Jesus talks about the love of money being the root of all evil, and it is that love of money that often leads to uh, stealing and to theft, uh, even as Jesus calls uh, the rich young man to sell all that he has and give it to the poor, uh, but that young man went away sad because he had great possessions. So that, that's kind of the, the very beginning of these scriptures. Uh, but Luther and the Catechism and uh, the Bible go a whole lot deeper into what stealing and theft is. And it's bigger than just, you know, don't walk into your local, uh, your local grocery store and just walk out with a couple of candy bars that you didn't pay for. Uh, don't do that either, for the record. <laughs> but, but it's a bigger challenge than just don't take what isn't yours. It's, it's not simply swiper, no swiping. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Pastor Golden? Uh, yeah, that's very helpful. And I might also just put this in the context of when the commandment was given, Exodus chapter 20, uh, and just kind of build on that a little bit, that uh, Exodus, you have the giving of the commandments. If you go forward in time, 40 more years, and uh, so that was right after the Exodus, before they begin the wandering in the desert, that you're at Sinai, Exodus 20. Well, at the end of the 40 years wandering in the desert, you get the book of Deuteronomy. And there, uh, Moses himself uh, reminds them of everything that God has done for them and such. And therefore, he also if you, uh, not only reiterates the commandments, but he also builds upon them or expands upon them. Not, not really uh, building or expanding, but expounding upon them to kind of give them greater insight. And there's a variety of things he does, especially with that seventh commandment. There's things such as you shall not move your neighbor's boundary stone. Why? Because if you're moving his boundary stone, you're stealing his property because you're saying, no, that's part of my land rather than his land. Or another one that comes up, for example, in Deuteronomy 25 is a mention of, um, that you should have fair scales that you're using, that you don't use unjust scales. And so um, specifically it mentions, hey, you don't carry around two types of weights by which you will weigh out the grain that you're buying or something so that you'll use the lighter one when it is advantageous for you and the heavier one when it's on the other side and is advantageous for you, but instead use what is just and right. And even behind that also is the question of, well, why would God do that? Now, obviously, there's just the objective reality that it's wrong to take other people's stuff, but also built in to Exodus, Deuteronomy, the whole of the Torah is this recognition where God tells them, I'm bringing you into the promised land, and you're going to live in a land in which um, you will have homes that you did not build. 
You will eat from vines that you did not plant because I, the Lord your God, am providing this for you. And so that in the end becomes the big thing is God gives you what you need. And this is why you don't need to take from somebody else. And furthermore, don't take from somebody else, whether it's by using unjust scales or moving a boundary stone. Don't take their stuff because God gave it to them. And he's the one who knows what they need. God knows what you need. So rest in the confidence that God has given you all that you need and then some more on top of that. When you when you mentioned the weights, God is talking about not using different weights. I'm a missionary kid, grew up in Africa, and I remember going to the marketplace on occasion. It got to the point where my dad sometimes would actually bring his own scale because yeah. you go to the different places buying vegetables, buying seafood, whatever it is you're getting. And I remember one time in particular, it was one of those scales where you put, you know, hang a hook on the bottom and you hang your bag to it. And the little lever that showed the weights that went up and down was bent downwards so that when you look straight at it, it actually looked like it weighed more than it actually did. I mean, just all the little things yep. that, that you might encounter. So we think, oh, weights and measures, that's so old-fashioned. And I'm sitting here thinking, no, no, I've actually encountered that directly. <laughs> We, we encounter it all the time as well. Just when you go to the gas pump, you'll notice, hey, there's a sticker on there because the inspector has inspected this gas pump to ensure that actually when you it says you're getting a gallon of gas, you're getting a full gallon of gas so that you're not being charged a gallon when you're getting nine-tenths of a gallon or whatever it might be. And the seal, you'll even notice on there, it uh, usually says something along the lines of punishable by law if the seal is broken, if you break the seal to get in there and finagle with the uh, pump. Just like there are um, mechanisms set up in the odometer that tell you how many miles are on your car, that if you try to back that up, uh, that it, uh, it it will register that you've messed with it and tried to uh, fudge the truth. Mm-hmm. And we all know that if you put your car up on blocks and put it in reverse, that doesn't actually roll your odometer back. At least we learned some particular stay off. <laughs> so, so are there ways... And whenever we talk about this, I mean, we're always going to be coming back to Scripture. So as I ask my next question, don't feel like we have to kind of move on from that. But are there ways that we in particular struggle with this commandment within our context, within our culture today? Um, Maybe that we don't think about or that we don't consider to be stealing um, or not a breaking of this commandment. Uh, Pastor Golden, how about you uh, start off with that one? Right. Well, this is you know, endemic to every culture because we're all sinners. And so we all have ways in which we struggle in this regard. And um, I don't want to get ahead of us too much because in many ways this drives us, um, and this is where we're eventually going to end up today, drives us right to the ninth and 10th commandments about coveting and desiring whatever others Mm -hmm. have. Um, But there are, uh, whenever we're grappling with sin, there's always, if you will, the surface and then there's the deeper issue that is behind it. So, you know, why is it that, well, you mentioned earlier, yeah, don't go and steal your uh, a candy bar from the store or whatever it might be. Uh, that would be bad. But really, what's behind that, you know, if, uh, if I do steal that? Or the one that I will often use uh, in catechesis is, uh, hey, you shoplift an article of clothing from the store. What What is it that actually is driving you to do this? And... Uh, Behind everything, of course, behind every sin is an idol, and that idol can often be something as simple as, well, I stole that piece of clothing because that is what is going to 
make me more popular amongst my peers. So now my idol has become um, popularity. My idol can be just simply uh, uh, fitting in with the crowd that I want to fit in and such. And that's that becomes a more practical, regular thing that drives not only a young person, but it can drive us as well, is that, hey, uh, we want to be like somebody else, mm. not content with who God has given us to be. Yeah, that's real. Some of the other easy ones, uh, <clears throat> maybe I'm dating myself a little bit. I know that Pastor Golden was pointing out I'm, I'm just a kid uh, a couple <laughs> minutes ago, and he's not exactly wrong. Look at all that uh, hair in your head. <laughs> it's fading fast, uh, but I'm not going to show that off to the camera. Uh, nonetheless, though, uh, we uh, there was a time when being able to illegally copy music on the internet and pass it around for free uh, and break copyright in that way uh, was something that was was fairly common and everybody kind of did a wink wink uh, nod nod uh, towards that copyright breaking. Um, something else, though, that I think is really applicable is how often do we simply not apply ourselves at our job or we're being paid uh, for the work that we do, uh, either by the hour or salary of just uh, going through the motions and not doing it as well as, as God wills you to do that vocation and that position that he's given you to do, uh, and you end up cheating your employer. That's something that Luther just goes off on about how... Uh, and I, I forget the German equivalency that he was using. He was talking about some amount of florins. Um, I'm not exactly sure how much a florin was for your average worker then. But he basically said, uh, if you walked into somebody's house and walked away with, with one amount, uh, you would go to jail. But if you uh, cheated your employer as a, as a servant or as an employee, and you just cheated them out of that same amount of money, you would be called just simply shrewd. Uh, and, but in that way, you end up stealing just as much or more from your employer than you would otherwise. What Luther here in uh, line 229, he uses this phrase, swivel chair robbers. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> what is he talking about with that? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Uh, today <laughs> we call that white collar crime. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so Do they this, actually have swivel chairs? I mean, that's why I'm confused. See, yeah, I didn't know they had swivel chairs in, in 16th century Germany, but apparently they did. I'm really excited about this phrase, and I think we just need to use it more. Uh, that's swivel chair robbery. But uh, uh, it's that kind of looking at how, how people would – uh, take advantage of others, not uh, as a robber along the highway or not as a burglar who breaks in and steals, but rather how somebody can sit at a desk. Uh, we would talk about like a Ponzi scheme or, or some kind of extortion uh, being a way that that happens today. Uh, I know there's, there's a little bit of angst over the, the rich who can manipulate the laws. Uh, and it's, that's, that's all that Luther is talking about. Uh, with this swivel chair robber. And it's something that, uh, like Pastor Golden said before, we're all sinners. This isn't new. This has been going on since at least the 16th century, as Luther talks about it, and and quite a bit before that. And the person that, that Luther identifies as being uh, the chief of the swivel chair robbers um, is the Pope himself, who is able to, by his own coercion, by uh, guilt and uh, a sense of propriety, make it look like everybody owed him money and end up just taking a lot of money from people uh, during those times. 
and he was serving as a white collar criminal or a swivel chair robber uh, in the 16th century and, and a bit earlier too. Pastor Golden, you have anything to add to that? Well, and I think a very apparent one that, uh, well, some aren't as comfortable this being used as an example, but to me it's rather apparent is just our even state-run lottery system and such. Mm. The studies have been rather uh, clear that those who are most likely to take 20 bucks and buy a bunch of lotto tickets hoping that they're going to become a millionaire are those who can least throw away their money, at least afford to throw away their money. It really preys upon um, those who are in a moment of weakness and they're banking on everything that this is going to uh, solve all of my financial problems. Because, of course, those who don't have financial problems, in part, the reason they don't is because they know I'm throwing away this $20 when I go and buy a lottery, you know, a bunch of lottery tickets. It's just the chances of me getting a real payout from this are uh, so slim, it doesn't make sense to do this. And so that becomes one way in which our, um, as a people, as a state, as um, a collective people, we take advantage of others um, who would be apt to buy such things and in the process take their money by taking advantage of their weakness. And this is something that goes back, uh, not necessarily the lottery system, but the idea that uh, the government can can provide for you and to put your hopes for material gains on the government goes back even to uh, the Old Testament. Uh, in 1 Samuel 8, Samuel was serving as judge of the people of Israel and uh, God had put him in that place, and the people did what the people of Israel and sinners everywhere tend to do best. They started to grumble. They said, we want to be like all the other nations, and we want a king uh, who will go out to battle before us, and who will represent us, and who will look strong and mighty, and who will do all the things that a king should do. And Samuel was grieved, and God uh, spoke to Samuel and said, remember, it's not that they are rejecting you, but they are rejecting me, and uh, give them give them this warning, and then give them their king. And the warning that he, God had Samuel give was, he's going to tax you, he's going to take your sons, and instead of working to build up your family's God-given inheritance and uh, the promise that God has given to your family, he's going to use it to build his house and his palace. He's going to take your sons as soldiers. He's going to take your daughters uh, and used as uh, as laborers. He's going to tax your crops. All of the things that I'm giving you, he's going to, to take from you. And the people said, yeah, give us that king. And, and so God allowed them to have a king. Uh, and throughout all of the history of the kings of Israel and later of Judah, uh, it didn't really turn out all that well for them because they did exactly what God said they were going to do in taxing and taking advantage of the people. And sometimes people are just eager uh, to try to get ahead. And, and we end up not getting ahead at all, but rather reaping the rewards of, of our desire to have additional things to what God has provided. Hmm. We've, we've got a question that's come in on YouTube comments. So I want to make sure um, when we have questions, let's let's ask that. And so Christopher is asking, is it cheating or maybe stealing, since that's what we're talking about, to haggle over the price of something? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a good question. Uh, I, partly this is uh, a purely and well, 
not purely an economic uh, question as far as what is the standard by which um, purchasing takes place so that for example, I know there are certain places that you go in uh, other nations that if you don't haggle with them, they're really disappointed and offended because that's just part of the purchasing process that you go back and forth and such. In our society, that's, well, part of buying a car as well that, um, you know, you go back and forth and that's why I hate buying cars. I don't enjoy doing that at all. <laughs> This is what it's going to cost me. I'm out of here and I'm done with this. So I wouldn't, you know, it's not necessarily, it could be, you know, it could be where if I know that this car salesman is in dire need of a sale or he's going to lose his job and it doesn't matter if he's going to make any money off of this, he himself is willing to do whatever he can to get the sale just to keep his job. Well, now if I'm aware of this and I'm taking advantage of his weakness again, well, now I've got a problem. Uh, now, because what am I doing? I'm taking advantage of my brother. I'm not concerned about him. I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. Instead, I'm just looking out for me. Yeah, I think it, it's also difficult because th this kind of a question can be difficult to deal with because, well, why wouldn't I want to, to haggle? Or why would I want to haggle? Maybe I want to haggle because I want I'm really trusting in my money to actually provide for me. And so I want to make sure I keep as much of it as I can. I mean, it's, there's so many directions you can go with this, but no matter where we end up, it's like, well, either I'm sinning or I'm helping the other person on the other end sin. And I'm trusting in maybe the, the wrong thing. I mean, what's, <laughs> or even, this, how do we get out of this? Or even I'm trusting my own intellect to preserve my money because I think that I'm a better manager of my money and how how I should receive it and how I should steward it than God himself is. Um, and so that's that's where we continue to see these commandments as, as really the will of God expressed among us. Uh, I think one of, one of the areas where even we as Christians maybe struggle with you know, condoning sin would be the individual who is starving, who steals a loaf of bread in order to feed themselves. And we look at that and say, oh, well, that's okay in that case. I mean, it, it's, it's like we're always looking for ways to justify our, ourselves. And so we're going to look for that situation of, well, they were starving. They needed to eat, and that was their only option. They had to steal. Therefore, it's not a sin. It's okay. We're not going to condemn them. But... I, I don't know if that's the right way to look at it. Right, right. And, and Peter, I know uh, you have heard me say this many times in adult Bible study of Village, that I cannot not sin. I cannot. Yeah. No matter what I do, I end up sinning because I'm a sinner, all right? And so um, as a result of that, and that's not, that is not permission just to say, well, I can't not sin. So I bet I'll just go sin. You know, it's not throwing your hands up in the air and saying, yeah, I'm going to do it anyway. But it's a recognition of this is how ingrained my sin is within me. What my sinful nature does is it taints everything. So even when I'm doing the right thing, I'm sinning because I've got a wrong motive attached to it all too often. All right. Yeah. And so um, my, my motives are never going to be pure. I've always got that issue. And this is that leads to two realities. One, um, I I'm going to be I need to be constantly in a state of repentance for those very things. I said two. I'm going to do three actually. One, constant <laughs> need for repentance. Number two is be focused more on um, 
not only, you know, I need to pay attention to my motives, but actually when it comes to what am I going to do? Well, what's the right thing to do in this situation? How can I best serve my neighbor? Which still, that's a difficult question to answer because my neighbor includes my wife and children. And maybe part of my haggling is if I spend, you know, if I get a better deal on this vehicle, I have more funds available to take care of my family's needs. And that's, that's a good thing. All right. And then the third one is recognizing that my sinful nature taints everything I do. Therefore, I don't look to myself for certainty in the midst of all these things, but rather I find my righteousness in Christ. Yeah. Amen. Pastor Earl, anything to add to that? No, I, I think, I think this has been a really good treatment. <laughs> cool. All right. Let's move on to the eighth commandments. Everyone's uh, favorite. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say Lutherans on the internet. Okay, now no. it's just... <laughs> oh, the internet. <laughs> <laughs> but we're doing this on the internet. So what does that mean? Okay, that it's coming. Rebellion. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we. I really, really think of the Slayton guy. Huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's good that we don't take ourselves too seriously. Yes. Um, so we were, we're moving over to page 388, if you're following along in your Book of Concord there. 388, second edition, eighth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So, scripture, what should we be looking at as we are considering this commandment? And Pastor Golden, I'll let you go first this time. Well, words matter words matter. And, you know, you already got a good treatment of this, although I actually haven't listened in. But when you guys handled the second commandment, I'm sure you talked about, hey, words matter. What you actually say about God is of the highest importance. And here, what you say about your neighbor is of the highest importance. So the words that you use um, actually mean something. Words can be used either uh, to serve the neighbor well, or the words can be used to harm the neighbor. That's the reality of what the Eighth Commandment is driving at. Hmm. Yep. Pastor Hill? Oh, oh, wait. Go back. There we go. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. But, uh, that's that's fine. One, yeah, and, uh, Peter, you've heard me say this because uh, sitting in on catechesis with your uh, kids and stuff at Village is that uh, I always tell the kids that every commandment is given by God in order to protect a gift that he has given to us. And so um, that's one thing to always ask yourself is what gift is God giving me? So, and that becomes a, all the more reason to turn aside from the temptation to break that commandment. So what is the gift that's given with, uh, that the eighth commandment is protecting? Well, it's the gift of a good name, a good reputation. And so that is God's gift to somebody else. How dare I tear down that good name that God has given them, even, you know, the name that he gave them in holy baptism. Yeah. Yep. That's and right. Proverbs 22.1 really leads off with that, too. It says, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. And that really gives us a good connection to the seventh commandment and then to the eighth, where more important than silver and gold that you think God hasn't given you enough of, here you have the gift given by God of a good name. But that name isn't just the name that you make for yourself. That would be the sin of the people of Babel who wanted to make a name for themselves, 
But instead, like Pastor Golden said, we have a name that has been given us by God in baptism, where he has called us by his name, uh, by the name of Christ, and then even written that name into the Lamb's Book of Life uh, and given us that eternal promise, uh, which then comes back to who are we to demean and uh, and besmirch, another great word, uh, to to take away from the name that God has given uh, to others and to us. And, and when that does happen, um, th- you know, we all will have our names attacked by others. And Jesus tells us, hey, that's going to happen. They've attacked me. They're going to attack you. But recognize the blessed company that that places us in. First and foremost, Christ himself. Talk about somebody whose name was drugged through the mud and without any cause at all. You know, the blasphemy, um, he was accused of blasphemy by false witnesses. And there is Christ himself suffering the attacks of those who are breaking the eighth commandment when he's put on false trial and such. Similarly, go uh, to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, specifically in Matthew 5, at the tail end of what we often refer to as the Beatitudes. Um, the last two really hang together very nicely, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted on account of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Now there's a lot packed in there, but here is eighth commandment's going to be violated. You're going to be attacked, but yet you are blessed because this is being done on account of me, Jesus says. So they attack the world attacks Jesus, it's going to attack you. Similarly, uh, Jesus here, verse 11 of Matthew 5, is put in parallel with verse 10, righteousness. Who is righteousness? Christ is righteousness. All right. Now, this is all about uh, what I've just set forth there. It's all about how we know we're going to, going to be attacked. Now, while Jesus there says you're blessed in spite of uh, those Eighth Commandment violation attacks. Well, we need to turn that around as well so that when I am guilty of breaking the Eighth Commandment, now I am the one who um, is on the other side of the Beatitudes rather than mm. being on the blessed side of them. How how does gossip fit into this? And, and do we have a good, de- does Luther give us a good definition? Does Scripture give us a good definition of gossip? Because I, in, in my own experience, um, and, and by experience, I mean watching others, but also myself and, and what I have done, it can be very easy to simply uh, share the news. Hey, this is going on and you need to know, I'm doing air quotes for those who are listening via podcast. I mean, it's like all these like, oh, you have to know this. This is information that is very important for you to know. When I, I started to feel more and more that whenever that comes up, it's like, well, are we sure this isn't just gossip? It, it, how how does this commandment help us navigate that? Luther sets up this great rhetorical conversation, um, and so uh, he writes in in line two sixty nine and two seventy. Uh, God therefore would have such behavior banned, that is, uh, the behavior of gossip, that anyone should speak evil of another person, even though that person is guilty, and the latter knows it well much less if anyone does not know it and has the story only from hearsay. But you shall say, 
Shall I not say something if it is the truth? Answer, why do you not make your accusation to regular judges? Ah, I cannot prove it publicly, and so I might be silenced and turned away in a harsh manner. And then Luther, being Luther, writes, Ah, indeed, do you smell the roast? There you are, <laughs> trapped in your sin. Uh, because uh, so often we have this idea of, if it's true, I should say it. Um, I had the blessing of, of uh, teaching a couple of guys uh, in catechesis and confirmation class last year who are wonderful truth tellers. And their moms pulled me aside before confirmation and said, hey, pastor, when you get to the eighth commandment, help us. And I said, okay. They said, just because something is true, our sons want to share it. And that's not <laughs> always good. Um, and, and all of a sudden I started to talk about how sometimes we know something is true. And one of the, one of the young men started to volunteer something about his teacher at school. And, and I said, but see, that's exactly it. Does your teacher want me to know that? Especially because she doesn't know me. And he kind of looked at me and he said, well, but it's true, Pastor. And I said, well, even if it's true, that doesn't mean that it's up to us to, to spread that or to share it. We always want to speak in such a way to protect and defend our neighbor's reputation, remembering that that good name for them is greater than riches. And so we always want to have that, uh, that argument, uh, not argument, sorry. Uh, we want to have that, that thought of how does this protect and serve my neighbor's reputation? It's kind of like, Peter, you were talking before about the person who, who steals bread because they don't have enough food to eat. Uh, that's essentially the white lie argument. Well, if I tell a little bit of a half-truth in, uh, in order to protect somebody's feelings, then, then that's okay, right? I can be a little bit deceptive because that's, that's going to be better for my neighbor, right? And, and it ends up being kind of an ends justify the means kind of an argument. Um, and I'm, I'm not sold that that's a, a, the best way to go about it. Yeah. Pastor Golden, any thoughts there? Well, one that jumps in my mind is an occasion where um, speaking the truth was necessary that we find in Holy Scripture is uh, in the book of Galatians when Paul talks about how he confronted Peter to his face because Peter was in the wrong. And the, uh, the background of the situation is... Um, not Peter ill, but rather. No, 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 no. Actually, we're yeah. both Peter. Which one was it? To his face. <laughs> you know, you gotta, you gotta deal with that right out loud. Right. So I'm confronting you both to your face because you're both in the wrong. Uh, but it was regarding. Uh, it's the entirely likely. Yeah. Uh, he would sit down and eat with Gentiles because he recognized in Christ. Uh, these uh, the barrier has come down. Jew and, Ge Jew and Gentile are one in Christ and such. And so Peter would sit and eat with the, the Gentiles. But as soon as the Judaizers, this group that said, if you want to be a true Christian, you have to, first of all, become a true uh, Jew. And that means uh, guys, male converts, you know, you got to go out and be circumcised. Everybody uh, needs to submit to dietary laws and on down the line. Well, um, whenever this group would come around, Peter would, well, not hang out with the Gentiles to kind to save face, and Paul confronts him to his face. Now, this is not an Eighth Commandment violation, because what is driving Paul here is the gospel, all right? He realizes the gospel is at stake, and so this has to be confronted even publicly so that people don't get led into false teaching, the false teaching of the Judaizers specifically. Um, and so Paul, later in uh, 
Galatians makes that rather clear. Hey, if you do go that direction, this is horrible because if you go down that, Christ means nothing to you. So that gets back to the issue of, you know, what makes something to be a violation of the Eighth Commandment? You know, well, what's driving it? Am I serving my neighbor or am I seeking to undercut my neighbor? Am I seeking to destroy his name? Paul's uh, point was not to undercut uh, Peter's name as an apostle. His point was to preserve the gospel. Now, this actually actually, dovetails in really well with uh, a question that's coming on YouTube. And And Christopher asks, I'm hearing an echo for some reason. Whether it be false, what Luther says, whether it be false preachers with their doctrine and blasphemy. Uh, could you discuss how false preaching and teaching breaks the Eighth Commandment? Because it never occurred to me until reading it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, false preaching and teaching, I would say, is, first of all, the most gross violation of the Second Commandment. All right. Um, but also, if false preaching and teaching, one way it can violate the Eighth Commandment is they are, if they predicate what is false upon the word of somebody else. So they are perverting... Um, what Paul wrote in one of his letters or what Matthew wrote down in his account of the gospel. Hey, now they are actually taking their name down with them in the process. Yeah. Uh, false teaching. Yeah. Is a violation of just about every commandment. <laughs> I mean, would it be possible that part of this is attributing your, your false teaching to the name of God, which causes people to last of who God is. I mean, is that other way that we can kind of get at that idea that if I say, look, this is what God says, and what I'm trying to get you to do is think, oh, God's horrible. He's awful. I don't like that guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, is maybe that kind of what we're getting at here too? God's name and God's reputation can become the object of your false testimony. About whom are you giving false testimony? You can very easily give false testimony about God, and that is both a breaking of the second commandment and of the eighth commandment. Um, You can also give false testimony about uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ by the way that you conduct yourself and the way that you uh, treat God and his reputation. And how often do we want to treat God's name like it is nothing? Uh, the the individual confession and absolution out of the hymn book is really uh, helpful here. Um, I have lived as if uh, as if uh, God did not matter and as if I mattered most. Ultimately, that kind of of living outside of God's name drags God's name through the mud and it profanes it, just like you profane the name of a neighbor when you. Uh, say terrible things about them. Uh, And so the Eighth Commandment and the Second Commandment are really tied up together that way. And, you know, this matter of the reputation uh, of God and his good name, that's really bound up in the original giving of the Ten Commandments as well. So go back to the original setting of the Exodus and remember what Moses and uh, God often, one of them wants to wipe out the people of Israel because they're such a horrific group of sinners. And, uh, and uh, at times when God comes to Moses and says to him, these people are so stiff necked, I'm going to wipe them out. And what does Moses say to them? Or what does Moses say to God? He says, Hey, for your name's sake, be merciful. 
Because what are people going to say about you if you brought them up out of Egypt only to wipe them out in the desert or something like that? And so this always goes back to God's name and for the sake of his reputation. And because he is known for his grace and his mercy, therefore this is why he's going to deliver the people and not um, smite them as they deserve. Now, whenever we talk about the Eighth Commandment in the large catechism, um, and, and paragraph 284 is where Luther begins talking about public sin. And it, it almost sounds like, uh, if I'm not careful as I read it, that he's basically giving permission to throw out everything that came before. Um, because if the sin is public, well then, you know, you're free to talk about it. You're free to, to say anything. I mean, at least that, that's how I often see it treated. Uh, how do we rightly understand what Luther is talking about public sin and keeping this consistent with what scripture says about somebody's reputation and their good name and preserving that. Who wants to go first on that one? I, I <laughs> That's think the hot potato. To, I think to, to benefit everybody who's listening, it, it's best actually just to read that, read that paragraph. It's, it's pretty brief. All this has been said about secret sins, but where the sin is quite public, so that the judge and everybody know about it, you can, without any sin, shun the offender and let him go his own way. Because he has brought his grace. You may also publicly testify about him. For when a matter is public in the daylight, there can be no slandering or false judging or testifying. It is like when we now rebuke the Pope with his doctrine, which is publicly set forth in books and proclaimed in all the world. Where the sin is public, the rebuke also must be public, that everyone may learn to guard against it. Uh, and so this gives uh, a bit of a window of when you see the corruption and the brokenness of the world, and when it's not an issue, uh, when, when none of the facts of the matter are up in the air, when everybody knows and, and agrees, hey, this thing that happened is, is terrible and it's wrong and, and this is a, a disgraceful thing, uh, you, can, uh, you can say appropriately, don't be like that guy or don't be like that woman. Uh, simply confess this is a terrible thing that has happened. Uh, we see the sin manifest in their life and hear and see that as an example of the sin that clings so closely, not only to them, but also that is lurking at our door. Uh, and so there is a time and a place for that. Luther especially applies this in terms of false teaching. And the motivation that he has is always for the, the building up of the Christian and the building up of the church. How will this disclosure benefit the greater church? Uh, and you can apply that back to what Pastor Golden was talking about in Galatians 3. When Paul confronts Peter about his hypocrisy, it is to cement both for those Christians that were there and for the Christians that he wrote to about it, that, hey, what Peter was doing was introducing doubt in the church. But I want you all to know there is no doubt in the church that God doesn't treat you partially. God is not hypocritical to, to Gentiles, to Jews, or to anybody. And so for the sake of the gospel, he, he makes a public spectacle of it, uh, not because he's trying to discredit Peter, not because he's trying to hurt Peter's reputation, but because for Paul, the gospel is at stake. And so if if the best answer you have is because it's true, 
that may not pass muster. But if your answer is, because this is true, and by sharing this, I advance the gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ and unity in the church, then perhaps it's something worth sharing. Uh, before I pass their goal, really quick, I'd say, you could also look at Paul's rebuke of Peter in this way. Um, and you guys can tell me if this is warranted by, by the scripture itself, but Paul could actually be attempting to preserve Peter's reputation by pointing out, look, what you're teaching is wrong. It's not consistent with who you are, with your confession, with, with being one of Christ's disciples. By you saying this and acting in this way, you are actually damaging your own reputation. And so for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of your own name, I, I need to correct you. Uh, is that at all accurate? And I'll pass it to Pastor Golden and he could share other thoughts <laughs> as well. I think that's I think that's faithful uh, to put it that way. That it is a way to preserve Peter through all this. And any additional thoughts on the whole public sin uh, rebuke side of this? Yeah, one other one, and and this is a simple teaching that my wife gives to our children that I think is well. The simplicity of it also is profound enough that it applies here. So my wife will often tell our kids when one of them is ratting out the other one about something or other, she'll say, now, are you getting your sister into trouble or out of trouble? So that in other words, are you, do you need to tell me this because you know, it's going to mean your sister's going to be punished for it. Or are you telling me this because you know that it, your sister is in danger and it's harming her or something like that, and you want her to be saved from that? Well, that's kind of the, the issue set before the child. Same thing is really true for us. Uh, we are ever children as well. We're children of the Father. That uh, it is a huge theme in Holy Scripture. We are ever the children of God. And so... Um, that can also be a question put before us as well as far as am I wanting to publicly address this matter in order to deliver or am I wanting to get somebody into trouble, if you will? Yeah. Uh, am, I, am I just trying to, to drag their name through the mud? And so um, if it's a matter of false teaching, well, there it's, hey, I'm not only trying to deliver that person maybe from their false teaching that needs to be addressed, but also their hearers need to be delivered from that false teaching because false teaching can lead them into perdition. That's, I, I appreciate your wife's approach to that. I think it is more wise than my own, which is, is somebody bleeding? If they're not bleeding, I don't want to hear about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think your wife's approach is probably better. Yeah. No, no, we, we that need to idea. Go, yeah, sorry, go ahead, Patty, Pastor. Sorry, that, that idea is really helpful as we apply it back to uh, Peter and Paul and their confrontation in Galatia, though, too, because uh, I'm, I'm still not quite sold, or, or a lot of people more properly would not be quite sold with this idea that you're preserving Peter's reputation by calling him out in public. Uh, a lot of people today would look and say, yeah, but because you've called him out in public, and you've made him look bad, he lost face, uh, you ended up hurting his reputation. Uh, but uh, Pastor Golden's line about, or, or Mrs. Golden's line more properly, about how this is an opportunity to get Peter out of trouble and to get him away from the false teaching he's been engaging in and to also help uh, all of the, the witnesses of his actions is a, is a really wonderful thing. 
Yeah. And so it should be done publicly to preserve uh, proper teaching, both both to Peter himself and to everybody else. Yep. And this is why we allow YouTube comments on our videos, just in case we accidentally say something we shouldn't. <laughs> let's, let's keep moving. We've got two more commandments, which are kind of combined into one. So that's great. Um, and in our last time here, so let's look at commandments nine and 10, which Luther does combine together. Now, we talked about this with as at the very beginning, the first and second commandments and how those get divided up. Before we talk about the scripture involved here, is there anything special about Luther and why these are sort of separated, but also kind of kept together? Like, does the numbering, is there anything significant about nine being nine and 10 being 10 and these divided, but then at the same time, Luther kind of puts them back together. How is, is there anything to that that we need to know in particular? The, the one thing that I always bring out simply in catechesis is that you can say the ninth commandment really helps focus us on um, coveting somebody else's, desiring somebody else's property, whereas the 10th commandment is more driven towards relationships. Uh, so there you're talking about your spouse, manservant, maidservant, and such. Um, but in the end, I think it, you know, it's very beneficial, as it happens here in the large catechism, to recognize they're dealing with the same root issue, which is as a matter of desiring what belongs to somebody else, desiring what God has given to somebody else. Pastor Ill, any thoughts there? Anything to add? Nope. I, okay. Well, wait, what, real quick. It simply comes down to everybody agrees that there's 10. Uh, <laughs> we're just not exactly sure where we split them. Uh, because you can split the first and second in different ways, and some folks do, and then not split nine and 10, or you can uh, not split one and two and then split nine and 10. Uh, but nobody ever splits any others. It's always somewhere around it, that it's, line. It's either right? on the ends. Yeah. 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 And then there's yet another way, actually, that uh, I'm somewhat akin to is that uh, a, a Hebraic way is to say what we count as the first commandment is actually the second, because the first one, well, act, after all, Exodus doesn't, um, Exodus 20 doesn't uh, call them commandments. It's just the statements of God. And the first one could be his statement saying, um, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. But that's, I just confused everything. So, <laughs> Well, no, the reason we can't do that is because that's actually a gospel statement. And we need these to be Ten Commandments of what we're supposed to do. Yeah. Right? 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 Another one. So, uh, all right, you opened the door for me. So, I did. You know, I'm, I mean, a, I'm, a, I'm a Hebrew guy. And while I'm a Hebrew guy, I can't say that this was is necessarily my insight. This is something that has been faithfully taught by Horace Hummel, who is kind of the dean of all Hebrew things in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. But he rightly points out the Hebrew of the commandments, what, or what we call the commandments, um, it is, um, I'm going to use technical terms here. Um, great, as long as we Pastor define them, that's great. Yes. So Pastor Ill, you'll understand this. But the Hebrew there is... Um, Lo, which is a Hebrew word that will negate certain verbs, all right? And then it uses lo plus the imperfect form of a verb. Now, let me unpack that a little bit. One That is one of the ways in which Hebrew can do 
what we would call a policy command. Now, a policy command is one that is always true. It, do, it doesn't vary from one case to another that sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not, um, but rather it is something that is always the true, always true. And this is the way that we typically translate these is as policy commands and it's very legitimate and very good. We should do it this so that you shall not fill in the blank. All right. You shall not. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Policy commands. But that same construction can simply be translated as an indicative statement. And an indicative statement is just a statement of truth. So that here would be the other way to translate it. You will have no other gods. All right. Hmm. So here's kind of the dynamic that's going on there is I would argue we are meant to hear it both ways. And it's always just a question of what's going on about uh, regarding how I should hear it so that when I fall into sin, I'm just going to use the first commandment here. When I fall into sin, I need to hear it as this policy command that says, golden, you shall have no other gods. And right now you're following after that idol. So it's the law pounding me, calling me to repentance. But then once the law has done its job and I've been moved to contrition and I um, am sorrowful for my sin, well, now also it comes along then in that other translation as a statement of you will have no other gods. And you know why, Golden, you will have no other gods? Because I, the Lord, your God, am your I, the Lord, your God, am your God. I'm not going to let any of these false gods lead you astray. So then it becomes God's word of promise as well. Now, the grammar allows that. And I think that's also a, a great part of the dynamic of, if you will, law and gospel within the Christian life. And this actually fits in really well. If you haven't listened to our or watched our bonus episode from last Thursday, when we talk about moving you know, through the cross, there's this law on one side of the condemnation. But then God's will on the other side of this is what the Christian life looks like. This, so as you're saying, you will have no other gods. This is great. This is good news. This is wonderful. This, this is wonderful for you to hear. This is how life is supposed to work. Uh, I have to be careful. I use good news, and I'm not using it in the technical <laughs> yes. sense necessarily. So I know that, that we, I can get into trouble if I'm not too careful. Talking about... You shall not covet in all its various forms. What scriptures do we need to be looking at uh, as, as we're covering this, these commandments here? Pastor Ill? I think that kind of the textbook one that I love to talk about is the story of Naboth uh, and his vineyard and King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Uh, who was a real piece of work. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> th this whole this whole account uh, really kind of, of handles almost all of the Ten Commandments in, in one account. And this is in, uh, let me check my notes here, uh, but I'm pretty sure it is in 1 Kings 21. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, so Naboth has a vineyard, and it is next to the uh, king's palace. And it we have to remember that this land has been passed down. Uh, God gave it to Joshua to pass out to the people, and it has been passed out and inherited uh, to Naboth from his father, from his grandfather, from his great-grandfather, and so on. This is his inheritance from God, this vineyard that he has. And the king looks at this vineyard. He says, hey, that's a pretty good vineyard. You know what? I don't need a vineyard right there. I want a vegetable garden. Naboth, <laughs> tell me your vineyard or give me your vineyard or somehow... 
I want your vineyard so that I can have a vegetable garden here. And Naboth says, no. Uh, and I like this thing that he says, well, this is my inheritance from God. This is what God has given me. You can't have it because it's, it's mine from God. And so what does King Ahab do? He pouts. He goes to bed angry. He turns his face to the wall and he mourns and he throws a good old fashioned temper tantrum. Queen <laughs> Jezebel comes in and she says, why are you so upset? And he says, I wanted Naboth's vineyard, but he wouldn't give it to me. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it was in exactly that tone, too. I mean, I it's, sure hope yeah, so. definitely. Um, and, and so uh, she says, ah, come down to supper. I'll take care of it. And she sets up this plan so that uh, there's going to be a, a festival in town and they'll get a couple of wicked guys to sit across the table from Naboth. They will say that he... Uh, that he and disgraced God's name. They'd take him outside the city. They'd stone him, and then Naboth would. Or, sorry, then King Ahab would just move right into Naboth's vineyard and do with it whatever he thought, because Naboth was dead and didn't care anymore. And so he'd get it for nothing. And so that's exactly what happened. So we see uh, the disgracing of Naboth's reputation. We see theft. We see coveting. Uh, I guess we don't see sexual immorality here, but we definitely see murder, uh, the misuse of authority, um, and ultimately treating that piece of land and, and the reputation of the king as his own uh, thing that he can manage, which is ultimately idolatry. Uh, we definitely have the second commandment involved. Oh, in oh and the second commandment too. That, right. that one's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You could say the sixth commandment is involved in the positive sense that we are supposed to love and honor our spouse. And uh, Ahab and Jezebel's interaction here is not exactly honoring one another in the process. Yeah, true, true. Yep. Well, uh, Pastor Golden, what other scriptures can we be looking at as, as we're considering these commandments? Well, another one that takes place uh, outside the king's palace or from the king's palace. You know, kings have this bad habit of looking out from their palaces and seeing things and desiring like them. It's like God warned Israel, you don't want a king, bad things are going to happen. Yep, yep. And so, uh, hey, King David looks out and he sees Bathsheba and he desires, he covets somebody else's wife. And it's another very similar to the story of Naboth. It's one where just one sin gets glommed on top of another, uh, where you have the sin, first of all, of the coveting of another man's wife. Uh, then you uh, end up with the actual violation of the sixth commandment when he brings her into his bedchamber. You also have a murder that ends up being part of all this. You have uh, deception, you know, just one sin on top of another. And it all starts off with the coveting, all right? So uh, it's a classic example of we would not say that he looked out the window and fell in love with Bathsheba. He fell in lust with Bathsheba, and then everything else happened. Now, Luther, as he's going through these commandments, uh, returns to the theme of, of divorce multiple times. Talk about the interaction between coveting and divorce and how that works itself out here. I think that a lot of this works out to be the coveting of a vocation that God didn't give you or the coveting of a call that God didn't give you. And so uh, we can clearly see that in divorce. And we, we 
especially the way that the Bible speaks about divorce, it always assumes divorce and remarriage. And so this idea of, of I'm going to get a divorce isn't just I'm going to get a divorce and go live by myself in a celibate life, but I'm going to get a divorce in order that I can go get married again because a different wife or a different husband would be better than this husband or wife. Uh, or we could say, what about the person who... Uh, is married and who says, but being single would be better. So I, I covet and I desire that vocation. How can I get that calling from God? Or the person who's single who says being married would be better than being single. Uh, and you can lead that to employment and to all kinds of things. And it, it does kind of beg the question, at what point is look at what God has given you, the skills and the abilities that you have, uh, maybe to look for a new job or a new field, a new career, uh, a different college major, take your pick. Uh, and there comes a point of where can you use this to serve your neighbor versus where is this a place for you to try to make yourself happy and to prove your own worth to yourself and to others? What are your motives and your motivations really becomes key here. But we know that our motivations are indeed corrupted by sin, but it is Christ who makes us incorruptible. Would it be accurate to say that this, this commandment is the one that really shows the depth of our, our self-love? Where, Because maybe this is the root of where a lot of that starts, because as we've you know, demonstrated, Scripture says it, it leads to just this desire leads to so many things. But I also think about the the idea of following my heart, um, or I have to find the job that, that fulfills me and that satisfies me, and things that, to a certain extent, might not necessarily be negative, but when we talk about them in terms of coveting, I think it does condemn us um, and, and in our own sin. Uh, Pastor Golden, I saw you nodding a little bit, so I'll, I'll throw it to you to either agree or disagree. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. And so uh, one of the first things that jumps in my mind is, you know, Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3, if my memory is serving me correctly, about uh, he talks about their God is their belly. All right. And mm. biblically, your belly is where your emotions are located, where your feelings, your desires your hunger and your craving is, all right? So what are they serving? What are they all about? Whatever I have a taste for, whatever I desire, whatever I want to consume. And that's what coveting is all about. Similar are Christ's own words about, hey, out of the heart proceeds evil desires and lust and things of that nature. So yeah, this is all about what's in here. And that becomes ultimately my idol is whatever I am desiring. And so the flip side of that, of course, is while uh, the commandments we mentioned before are given to protect a gift, protect a gift that God has given us, the gift that he gives us is contentment. So go again to Philippians and think about Paul um, and Philippians 4, he talks about how uh, he has learned in every circumstance to be content, right? It's an incredible thing for Paul to say, because here, this is one of his captivity letters. He's in chains for the gospel, uh, and yet he can be content because his contentment is, first of all, grounded in Christ. Christ is with him, but also a recognition that all that I truly need 
Christ has provided for me. And this is why I don't need to desire what somebody else has, their spouse. And this is what's going on often with divorce as well. Even if it's not about remarriage, hey, I'm not content with the marriage that God has given me. So I'm going to get rid of that so I can be just free on my own or whatever it might be. Yeah, I'm, I'm coveting freedom. I'm coveting my whatever it is I want to do without thinking of anybody else. Uh, yeah, there are so many things that can be coveted when seeking to, to leave a marriage. Um, we, we also talk about at the very beginning uh, of this series, we talked about the first commandment. When you break any other commandment, you're breaking the first. So as, as we're wrapping up this, because we're already over time, but that's okay. Um, as, as we're wrapping this up, these commandments also feed back into all the rest. Talk about how, how that actually works. Um, Pastor Ill, you want to start off on that one? I was happy to let Pastor Golden start, but... Uh, well, then let's give it to Pastor Golden. Go right ahead. <laughs> I'm going to be a broken record. I'm going to go back to something I mentioned before. You know, when Christ is dealing with purity in, uh, in the Gospels, uh, and he's asked about this, hey... Um, he says, it's not what goes into a person that makes him impure, but it, what, it's what comes out of a person. For from the heart proceeds evil desires and lusts and fornication, etc. And so this gets back to, yeah, um, at the root of all sin is a violation of the ninth and 10th commandment. It's all about I'm coveting, I'm desiring something other than what God has given me. Now, I'll always put that as secondary to what you mentioned that every sin is a violation of the first commandment because everything is always about God. Who is your God and uh, what false gods are you propping up for yourself? But immediately you can identify your false gods by looking at what are you desiring? Your desires reveal who your God is. And even keeping it as that secondary, what we could do with that is say, well, I'm God. Right. That, that's what I'm doing. I, I want to be God. And so on this far end with the ninth and 10th commandment, what I really desire is for me to be God, which of course is breaking that that first commandment as you as you run them all the way through. Uh, as as we're wrapping up here, we're we're at the end of our time. But when when we talk about the law, there 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 have been moments in this episode where I've been thinking, oh, that's that's me, that's <laughs> yeah. and, and I am very I'm crushed by the law. We talk about uh, talking about our neighbor's reputation, and I think of my own words about people. Am I speaking? to build them up, or am I speaking, hoping that, oh, maybe somebody will think just a little bit less of them if I, I say this thing. And so having, having been crushed myself as we're, as we're talking here, how does Christ come to us and, and what does he have to say uh, about this in the midst of this law that is crushing? And I want to give both pastors a chance, and Pastor Ill, this time I will go with you first, and we'll give Pastor Golden the final word. Great. Uh when Christ says, I am the vine and you are the branches, remain in me and I will bear much fruit in you. That is talking exactly about this. Uh, Christ does his will in us. He makes us holy and he does fruit. Uh, he produces fruit, I guess. It's easier to say it that way. And when he does that, when he bears that fruit, he does it in accordance with the law. And a lot of times when we look at the law, we're tempted to say, oh, here's all the stuff I got to do. But newsflash to sinners, no, you can't do it. And so what do we do? We simply pray like we do in the Lord's Prayer. 
thy will be done. And God changes you through the means of grace, through baptism and the Lord's Supper and hearing the word of God and hearing preaching on the word of God and having your sins forgiven. In those ways, he transforms you and he conforms you to his will. And then he bears the fruit that he will bear, which looks an awful lot like what he has commanded. Not because you have to, but because it is what he is doing among you. Uh, and so this isn't even a case, maybe I'll, I'll step out even, even a little farther. This isn't a case just where we say, I get to do the law. No, it's Christ does the law inside of me. Thanks be to God, because if it was up to me, I am completely and totally sunk. And so even as we hear all of this law, and it sounds like such bad news, ultimately we take comfort that Christ our Lord is bearing fruit in each of us, sometimes seen and sometimes unseen. Pastor Golden? Amen to that. I love the uh, great encapsulation of... I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, and therefore, hey, he lives in me, so I uh, bear good fruit uh, because this is what he is at work at. Now, the I'm going to go back a step before that also uh, to, hey, when the law does its thing so that it does crush you, as you, Peter, were mentioning, um, how the, you know, hearing some of these words uh, of the commandments crushes me, well, rejoice it in what that reveals to you is that... Um, you're a sinner, and you have a Savior. So Jesus' own words are, um, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who have it bad. All right? And that's a more literal translation than what we typically get. Hey, you've got it bad, and you've got a Savior. You've got one who comes for those who have it bad. Jesus comes to save sinners from their sin. I, I'm rem reminded of a little Luther quote, and I don't even remember where he said this or wrote this, but he said, whenever the devil comes along and starts uh, pointing out your sin and hammering you for it, uh, give him this retort where you say, well, thank you for pointing out my sin because that reminds me that I have a savior, all right, mm -hmm. who has forgiven me all that sin and brings me life everlasting. And by the way, oh devil, you forgot these extra sins over here for which Christ has forgiven me as well. Amen. Well, thank you, Pastor Golden and Pastor Ill, for joining us on Crucial Conversations. Pastor Ill will be back next week with Pastor Dirks, who we're going to be talking about the uh, first and second article of the Creed. We're going to start moving into that. And Pastor Golden will get to join us again in June. So we look forward to having you back again. And I don't remember what the topic's going to be <laughs> Off, well, offhand with, with our schedule there. But anyways, thank you, those of you who have joined us for Crucial Conversations, teaching you to think like a confessor. We will be back next week. Be sure to join the Grok Moot if you haven't done that yet. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Subscribe to the podcast if you prefer consuming your media via podcast. And once again, we will be back next Tuesday, 8 p.m. Central Time, broadcasting right here on YouTube. Thank you very much for joining us, and have a wonderful evening.